You are listening to audio from Citizens Church, Elmira. You can find more resources and learn more about our church at citizensalmira.ca. It's good to be here with each one of you this morning as we continue our studies through the book of Ephesians. This morning we begin in Ephesians chapter 5, the passage which was read to us. I've entitled the message, Be Who You Are. The issue of identity has become a defining issue of our time. Identity politic is the catchword of the day, to be who you are. As Christians, this issue of identity is critical to how we live. Is our identity primarily found in our nationality? Is our identity primarily found in our race, our culture, our sexuality? Or is our identity primarily found in our feelings? Um, many feel that that's the road to go. If our identity is found in our feelings, it's built on shifting sands. For the way I feel today is not necessarily the way I felt yesterday, and it won't be the way I feel tomorrow. Feelings are a very poor base on which to build my life. Thankfully, as a Christian, my identity is built on a much firmer foundation. And clearly, having my identity as a Christian is critical to knowing how I am going to live my life in this 21st century. And here is the first takeaway I want to leave with you this morning, right up here. When you know who you are, that's identity, then you know what to do, that's action and behavior. When you know who you are, then you know what to do. In the first half of the book of Ephesians, Uh, The Apostle Paul deals with this issue of our identity as Christians. And then in the second half of the letter, he deals with this issue of our behavior, our actions as Christians. So I want to do just a little quick review to take us back, because we've now been going through the book of Ephesians for a couple of months. Let's go back to Ephesians chapter 1. And we have up here Ephesians chapter 1, beginning at verse 3. And let me read this passage to you, which is the key passage of our identity. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. So here we have our identity laid out. Here's the first thing, and I have them highlighted. We are in Christ. That is the core of our identity as Christians. Our identity as believers is no longer built on our feelings, our nationality, our race, Jew, Gentile, whatever it may be. It's built on this issue of an identity in Christ. Our identity is in his power and perfection, not our own weaknesses. And then there's a number of modifiers which I have have highlighted, modifiers and descriptors of what it means to be in Christ. It says we are blessed with every spiritual blessings. It says he chose us. We are chosen for a new purpose. We've experienced adoption. That is, we're adopted as sons and daughters, children into God's new family. We have experienced redemption. That is, we have been bought. We have been redeemed. We have been released and liberated as a slave is liberated from their past. We have experienced forgiveness. We are forgiven. The past 
is gone. We are brought into a new Christian family made from Jews and Gentiles, made from tribes and nations all over the world. Our identity as Christians is we are in Christ. What a wonderful gift. In Christ, blessed, chosen, adopted, redeemed, forgiven. A multinational, multicultural family of God. Think of this. Take this away. There's two takeaways today. Here's the first one. When you know who you are, then you know what to do. And in the passage before us this morning in Ephesians 5, Paul encourages us. Now that you know who you are, you're in Christ. Here is what you need to do. So if you have a Bible, turn with me or it's on the screen. Let's begin in Ephesians 5 verse 1. Paul writes, Therefore be imitators of God as beloved children. As children, we are part of the family of God, but we are more than just children. We are described as beloved children. One of the only places this word is used in the New Testament, along with the time when Jesus is baptized and the voice comes from above, which says, the Father says, this is my beloved Son. What an incredible thought to see ourselves in the same category. A beloved child, a beloved daughter, a beloved son in Christ. That is who you are. That is who I am. Beloved, highly favored, esteemed, cherished, a parent's deepest love, a grandparent's deepest love. Let it sink in. When you placed your faith in Christ, you've been adopted into God's family. You are a chosen, beloved child. We could stop right there. Just if we could only let that sink deep, deep, deep into our hearts. That is who you are. You are a beloved child of the Heavenly Father. Isn't that wonderful? When you discover your identity in Christ, a beloved child of the Heavenly Father, then you want to live out of that identity. To be who you really are. To live in a way that brings freedom and joy into our lives. To live in a way which brings joy to the Heavenly Father. Ephesians 5 verse 1. Let's read that again. Therefore be imitators of God as beloved children. To know how to live as a child, follow your parent. To know how to live as a Christian, follow the lead of your Savior. Follow the lead of your Heavenly Father. Be followers, be imitators of God. The word here actually for imitator comes from a word which means to mimic. Be mimickers, follow your leader. As a young couple, um, as a young child, enthusiastically seeks to copy their parent, so we as beloved children are to enthusiastically try and mimic, try and imitate our Heavenly Father. It's many years ago now, the interest rates, I got a great interest rate on my first house. It was 13.5%. That was back in 19. That was good because the year before they were like 15%. Um, and Sharon and I moved into our first home, which was a small raised bungalow on Canary Court in Birdland. And as is typical for young parents, right away we didn't feel we had enough room. It's, it's just a thing that happens. Now, now as grandparents, it's like we're going to shrink mode, right? But it was a time we needed more space. And Elmira was growing at that time. The mid-80s were a time of a lot of new houses, houses had been built. And uh, we thought, let's finish the basement. And so I tried to get a contractor to, to drywall the basement and finish. I couldn't find one. They were also busy with like big jobs. They didn't really want my little few thousand dollar job in the basement. 
And uh, so since I couldn't find a contractor to do the, uh, the drywall, what a mess of a job. I think we, Sharon went back into the archives. These are these old snapshots, pre-digital. Um, and, uh, but it's a mess of a job, but unbeknownst to me, I had a future building contractor in the house, didn't know that at the time, and he was more than willing to pitch in, to follow his dad and mudding the walls. And if his dad could finish the basement, then he wanted to join the team. Um, by the way, I, I went back into the, my archives back in the basement, and I found the trowel. <laughs> I got it. He's on to greater things today for sure, but he got as much mud on himself as anywhere else. As a child mimics their parent, as a child wants to follow their parent, so our desire is to follow our heavenly father. So in the rest of the passage before us this morning, the apostle explains what does it mean to be an imitator of God? What does it mean to be a follower, to be a disciple? And to do that, he uses this picture of walking. And I got a great picture up here. Of, I, I like this picture. The child walking with their parent, that little small hand in a strong hand, walking with a hand that guides and protects, walking with a hand that knows where it's going, to walk means to put your belief into action. It really means to live it, to live it out. To walk is to really put your belief into action. And there's three things that are, that are marked out here on our walk of faith in this passage. The first is found in Ephesians 5, verse 2 there. And we're told that we should walk in love as Christ loved us. So there's the first walk, walk in love. Verse 8. For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. There's the second walk. Walk in light. And then verse 15. Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise. Walk in wisdom. And that's the message for this morning. Walk in love. Walk in light. Walk in wisdom. How do I imitate? How do I follow? How do I be who I am? Be who you are in Christ as a beloved child. Imitate your heavenly father. Walk in love. Walk in light. Walk in wisdom. Now let's kind of unparcel those and look at them in detail. Let's begin Ephesians 5 verse 2 with the first one. And walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Be who you are. Walk in love. Now, the, the word love in our society has been overused, misused, confused in meaning. It's used so many ways we don't know exactly what it means. It's a word that has lost its deepest meaning. I, I call here on our friend, scholar Kirk Durston. I like his little comment. Kirk says, real love is the toughest thing a human can try to explain. Maybe because true love is, according to God, the greatest and foremost thing we can possibly pursue. So rather than explain love here, the apostle uses an example of love. He gives us the greatest example of love, which is the sacrificial love of Christ, the one who gave himself for his friends, the one who gave himself for his enemies, the one who gave himself for us. Look again at that text. And walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and a sacrifice to God. Not only is Christ our powerful example, he is also the all-sufficient Savior, the one who gave himself as an offering and a sacrifice for us, an offering and a sacrifice in my place, as my substitute, 
In love, he gives himself for us as a sacrifice. He bears my sin. He dies my death. He takes my condemnation. I love the old song, bearing shame and scoffing rude in my place. Condemned he stood, sealed my pardon with his blood. Hallelujah. What a savior. This is love. Christ is our example of how to walk in love. But more than that, Christ is the savior who empowers me to walk in love. When we truly encounter Christ on the cross, the one who gave himself for us, then we come to grips with, you know, when I think of the cross and all its blood and gore and ugliness, I'm brought face to face with my own sin and failure and ugliness. It takes me to see clearly the deceptiveness within my own heart. But when I truly encounter Christ on the cross, the one who gave himself for me, I'm also brought face to face with the wonder of salvation and grace and forgiveness. When our hearts are truly captured by the incredible love of the Savior, a love unto death, we cannot help but be transformed. Love so amazing, so divine, demands my heart, my life, my all. It's the irresistible response of a redeemed heart to walk in love. It was a sports hero of a previous day, Cambridge athlete, who came to this conclusion. If Jesus Christ be God and died for me, then no sacrifice can be too great for me to make for him. And with that conviction, C.T. Studd took the message of Christ's love to the people of Africa and China. He founded WEC, which uh, some of us be aware of, which is still a mission to, these day, to this day, walk in love. Now, when it comes to Christian love or true love, there are at least three levels of Christian love. And the first is this. The first level of Christian love or true love is we care for the other. That's compassion. The second level of Christian love is we care for the needs of others. That's compassion in action. But the deepest level of Christian love is this. We care for the needs of others at cost to ourselves. That's sacrificial love. Yui Holmer faithfully served as a Christian minister in East Germany during the difficult days of the communist dictatorship. It was a difficult time to be a Christian in East Germany. It was even more difficult to be a pastor under the oppression of a communist, atheistic communist government. And it was even more difficult for Yui because he, being a man after my own heart, he, he saw the silliness of communism and the oppression, and he spoke out against it. And he ended up in the bad books of the government. And for that, he was harassed. His children were unable to go to higher education at university simply because of his role as a pastor. Yet through all those dark days, Yui Homer kept preaching the gospel. In his own words, here's what he says. I simply proclaim the grace of God and how we can take hold of it by faith. For where there is forgiveness of sins, there is life and salvation. On the other side, for 19 years, from 1971 to 1990, Eric Honecker was the all-powerful dictator of East Germany. He was an avowed atheist. He was an enemy of the church. He was an ideological opponent of Christianity. He was also responsible for the security of the Berlin Wall. He was responsible for a, uh, a, a, a government uh, mandate, which was called the order to shoot. And he upheld that. 
and ultimately 300 people were shot to death attempting to climb over the Berlin Wall from East Berlin to West Berlin. Then communism imploded. I guess some of us are old enough to remember that. It was a big day because growing up in the 60s and the 70s, it, the Soviet Union seemed so powerful, and it all melted into nothingness. It all imploded. One by one, the communist dictators of, East Germ of East, uh, Eastern Europe fell. The Berlin Wall was smashed into rubble. And Erich Honecker went from being the most powerful man in East Germany to being the most despised man in the country. Fearing he might be torn apart because he was thrown out of his government home, he no longer could live in it, and he had no choice but to try and live on the streets. He had nowhere to go. He was sick with cancer. And so in his distress, what did he do? He turned to the church, the church he had despised and criticized and persecuted. For Huey Holmer, the question wasn't simple, but it was clear. Did he really believe what Jesus said? Driven from his home and turned onto the street, Honecker came to Homer and asked for help. Huey Homer had to decide what did he really believe. He knew what the answer was. He explained to his neighbors a little later, he said, Jesus said, love your enemies, and his neighbors thought he was crazy. And in January 1990, Huey took the disposed dictator and his wife, because they had nowhere to go, he took him into his home for 10 weeks and cared for him. It caused an incredible uproar. You can imagine press, photographers, protesters. He stayed with him for 10 weeks until finally they figured out a way to whisk him off to a hospital in the Soviet Union and eventually ended up in exile in Chile and died in 1994. When asked later if he would do it again, Huey Homer didn't miss a beat. Absolutely, he said. Here's what he said. He said, the world is overflowing with sin and hatred and strife, war and godlessness. It is so desperately needing the offer of grace and forgiveness through the cross and resurrection of Jesus. Amen, Huey. And on September 25th of this year, just two months ago, Pastor Huey Ulmer received his promotion to glory. Be who you are. Walk in love. When you know who you are, then you know what to do. Let's continue. Ephesians 5, verse 8. Walk in love. Verse 8, for at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light, for the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. Be who you are in Christ. Walk in light. In the scriptures, light is all that is good and right and true. Light is one of God's attributes. 1 John 1 verse 5, God is light and in him is no darkness at all. The writer of the gospel says of Jesus, in him was life and that life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. Think of what light does. Light enhances life. On a dull day like this, the trees look pretty dead, but as the light from the sun shines, those trees turn brilliant and wonderful, spectacular in the sunshine. Light enhances life. Light dispels the darkness. It gets dark. I like to go for a walk. The other night there, we were on the trail down by the dam, and it was getting dark, and there's old roots down there. And so as it got dark, and I wasn't back to the car, I had to kind of tiptoe because I didn't want to trip over the roots. But when the light is there, you can walk with a, a bounce in your step. But there's a flip side. Light exposes. Saw that the other morning as uh, we'd cleaned the front windows, and in the dusk, they looked pretty good. 
And when the sunlight came through, it was, oh, man, what a, what a mess. And then there's darkness. Darkness hides, darkness covers, darkness restricts, it imprisons, and ultimately darkness may destroy. So the apostle says, walk in light. Once we were darkness, but now we are light in the Lord. There's two key aspects of the darkness that he makes note of. Verse 4, Ephesians 5, verse 4. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place, which are darkness. But instead, let there be thanksgiving. Verse 12, for it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. Here's the first darkness that he wants to expose. Darkness in speech. Obscene, foolish crudeness. I think what we would call trash talking. The apostle reminds them that may be the way that people live in Ephesus. That may be the way it is in the city of Ephesus. But that's not the way it's to be with you. That might be the way it is in your workplace. I suspect it might be the way it is in your locker room. But leave that darkness behind. Refuse to be controlled by a prison of filth. Your words, my words, define who I am. Leave that bondage behind. Get out of that prison. Be who you are in Christ, marked by truth and integrity and thanksgiving. But, but there's a second darkness in this passage, which I think is a more intense darkness, which he exposes. Ephesians 5, verse 3. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you. Verse 5. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, because that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of God and Christ. Let no one deceive you with empty words. Darkness in sexuality. The word here that's used for sexuality is the Greek word porneia, which is the root word of pornography, which just means sexual immorality displayed. Pornea is associated with impurity and with covetousness. For in sexual immorality, we desire what isn't ours. And in fact, in verse 5, it's associated with idolatry. An idol is something which takes first place in our lives. And here, sexual desire becomes an idol, the central defining aspect of my life. And the message of verse 5 is incredibly solemn and incredibly powerful. And he goes on to say this. Don't be fooled. Don't be deceived by what anyone says, no matter how sophisticated they sound. A continuous, unrepentant indulging in sexual immorality is completely incompatible with being a Christian. Someone might say, what is meant here by the phrase sexual immorality? Now, it would be trendy for me to be rather obscure in my definition. That's the spirit of the age. But I would be untrue and dishonest with you and with the very plain meaning of this text. And it, if it was only a one-off, it was only once in the New Testament this was mentioned, but I was looking at it this week, this same teaching is found over and over and over again. When we read the letter of Paul to Corinth, he tells them the same thing, to Thessalonica, to Colossae, to the churches in Galatia. It's the clear direction given in the New Testament for Christian behavior. And it's very different than the standard of our culture today. So what does this mean? What does the scripture mean when it talks about sexual immorality or pernea? I've got a definition there which I think covers it all. It's all sexual activity outside the bounds of a lifelong covenantal relationship 
of one woman and one man. All sexual activity outside the bounds of a lifelong covenantal relationship of one woman and one man. Listen, friends, our society, our age is permeated with porneia. It has become normalized, even trivialized. But the fact is, it's not a new phenomena. The city of Ephesus was full of porneia. Our situation today is not new or unique. Unfortunately, has returned. A few years ago, Sharon and I got a chance to go to Ephesus, which I highly recommend if you ever get an opportunity to go there. It's Even in ruins, it's a fascinating place. That's the main walkway that goes from what was the harbor up to the main part of the city. And you can see the amphitheater there, which was one of the greatest in the ancient world. Ephesus was a major, major city in the ancient world, one of probably the top four or five cities. That amphitheater seated 25,000 people. But here's the piece I find fascinating. On the, one of the walkways of the streets that was uncovered, there's a bunch of little bits and pieces in there, but you can see the foot. That's an advertisement. It's showing the way. It's showing what size your foot needs to be to go there. And then it's pointing the way to the house of the prostitute. Paul was writing to a church in a city that was full of sexual immorality. So someone might ask the question, so why has Christianity placed such clear boundaries around our sexuality? I think it's not without cause that sexuality has to be compared to fire. A fire for good. A fire within the bounds of the fireplace, within the bounds of the furnace. It heats the entire house. It's a power for life and a power for warmth. But a fire outside the fireplace can quickly become complicated. A spark can set off an entire Alberta wildfire. As a Christian, I am called to keep the fire in the fireplace. Even to the Christian, sexual immorality, porneia, may appear enticing, alluring, tempting, even attractive. But its outcome is usually much different. Rather than giving us the fulfillment it promises, it often brings us regrets, remorse, and bitterness. It catches us in a prison of our own making. I think you know me well enough to know I love gospel music, and I love the blind gospel singer Gordon Moat, and he has a, a marvelous song, which I won't attempt to sing, which is called Doors Wide Open, but you can do a little Google on uh, YouTube and enjoy the song. And it goes like this. It's an invitation to live on our freedom in Christ, we are free, so live free. Why do you stay behind those bars when a soul set free is who you really are? Why do you wear those prison rags when he's told you you're not captive to your past? It's time to throw off those chains. Why are you sitting in a prison with the door wide open? Aren't you ready to start living like you know you've been forgiven? Sitting in a prison with the door wide open, who the sun sets free is free indeed. You're free. You're free. You're free. Why are you sitting in a prison with the door wide open? Be who you are in Christ. Walk in light. When we know who we are, then we know what to do. Come with me to verse 15, and let's look at the third walk. Look carefully, then, at how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of time, because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Walk in love, walk in light. Here's the third one. Walk in 
wisdom. Make the best use of your time. Use time wisely. Use time effectively. The old King James says, redeem the time. Why? The apostle says, because the days are evil. It was a difficult time to be a Christian. Think with me of the setting. Where is the apostle Paul when he writes this? He's in prison in Rome. Nero is the emperor. Serious persecution of the faith is just around the corner. It would not be very long before Christians were tied up on lampposts and burned in the night to light Rome. And unrest filled the Middle East. Sounds familiar. Jewish nationalists were stirring. The empire was pushing back. It would just be a few short years that Jerusalem would be obliterated. And in that context, Paul says, use your time effectively for the kingdom. Walk in wisdom. Now, I should add, making the best use of time doesn't mean trying to be as busy as you possibly can be. You know, the kind of the time management thing, how to do six things at the same time, well, good luck, right? Um, even your, if your activity is really, really good, he's not telling you here to schedule as much into your, into your day planner as you can, no matter how good that activism is. Think of where Paul is as he writes this. He's in prison. He's restricted in his activity. He can do almost nothing. But he makes the best use of his time. And he sits down and he writes some letters. Letters explaining the core of the Christian faith to these churches that he has visited all over the ancient empire. And he writes this letter to the Ephesian church. And here we are this morning, 2,000 years forward, being instructed by the words he penned he could never have imagined. His activity was limited, but he used his time well. He walked in wisdom. You know, some of us work very ordinary jobs. It seems very unglamorous, very unimportant. Let me tell you something. It's a whole heck of a lot better than being in prison. Look for the opportunities. Some of us are parents. Some of you are mothers. That's a tough job. Mothers of little ones. It seems so mundane sometimes. But what an opportunity to shape a life. And then there's a few around like Paul and myself, and we're retired. That's me, right? Retired. Don't miss the possibilities. Walk in wisdom. Walk in love, walk in light, walk in wisdom. We're about done our time here, aren't we? Um, there's a little more to cover. Remember what I said? When you know who you are, then you know what to do. One last point. It's found in Ephesians 5, verse 18. I thought you should miss this piece. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery. That is really a dumb idea. But be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything. Note the key phrase here. Be filled with the Spirit. Filled not only in the sense of filling up an empty cup, but you know, sometimes when someone is like really angry, we say, Oh, that individual is filled with anger. What we mean is they're controlled by anger. So when Paul says to be filled, he not only means to pour it in, he means to be controlled by the Spirit. What a surprising comparison and contrast. I would never have done this. But since the Apostle Paul did it, it's okay, right? What a surprising contrast. A comparison and a contrast with alcohol. So just as the individual full of alcohol is under its control, under its control in the very, very worst sense, so we are commanded to be under the control of the Spirit in the very, very best sense. Controlled by the Spirit who is given to all of us when we trust in Jesus. 
The Spirit who transforms our lives. And don't you love those transformative parts of our character which come through the Spirit, defined there in the book of Galatians? Peace and joy and love, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Be filled with the Spirit, controlled by the Spirit. Why? Because the Holy Spirit has been given to us to enable us to walk in love, to walk in light, and to walk in wisdom. Here's your second takeaway. God's Spirit enables us to do what God's Word instructs us to do. God's Spirit enables us to do what God's Word instructs us to do. And what does this passage mean that we're to address one another, encourage one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs? Psalms are like from the Old Testament, what the Old Testament believers sang. Hymns are high anthems of praise. Spiritual songs are, are new songs of the heart. Songs are expression of our faith. Songs are expression of our hope. They're expressions of our joy. As long as there has been a church, there has been singing. And in spite of all the challenges of life, in spite of all the difficulties we face, the Spirit can fill us with joy and thankfulness. Be encouraged, no matter how bad the situation, there can still be a song. There's, there's something about a powerful Christian song that just goes straight to the heart. It brings comfort to our wounds, and it gives us joy and thanksgiving. Paul knew what he was talking about, or should I say he knew what he was singing about. It was just a few years later, or a few years earlier, he was in Philippi. You can read the story in Acts 16, and it had been a bad day. It hadn't gone the way he'd planned. He'd been arrested, he'd been beaten, and now in the dark of the night, he is chained in a dungeon. And what does he do? He sings, and he sings. Do you know, brothers and sisters, when we run into tough times, we can dwell on our circumstances, or we can dwell on a song. What would you sing if you found yourself alongside the Apostle Paul in a prison? Would you sing as we sang this morning, Great is thy faithfulness, O God, my Father. There is no shadow of turning with thee. Thou changest not thy compassions. They fail not as thou hast been. Thou forever would be. Or would you like the contemplative song, I will not boast in anything. No gifts, no power, no wisdom. But I will boast in Jesus Christ, his death and resurrection. Why should I gain in his reward? From his reward, I cannot give an answer. But this I know with all my heart. His wounds have paid my ransom. You know, I wonder when the earthquake hit and the prison began to shake and the bonds were broken, I wonder if he didn't know in the song he could have sung, my chains are gone. I've been set free. My God, my Savior has ransomed me. And like a flood, his mercy reigns, unending love, amazing grace. Well, there it is. When you know who you are, then you know what to do. The Holy Spirit enables us to do what the Word of God instructs us to do. Walk in wisdom. Walk in light. Walk in love. Let's pray. I will not boast in anything. No gifts. No power. No wisdom. But I will boast in Jesus Christ, his death and resurrection. Thank you, our Father, for our identity in Christ. Thank you that in Christ we are your beloved children. Renew us, O Lord, and power us through your Spirit that we may live in love, that we may live in light, that we may live in wisdom. Today and each day of our lives, until our traveling days are done, through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.